This winter, Hulu and Disney Plus are better together in a brand new bundle. That's wicked. Wicked good. With titles like Disenchanted and Willow on Disney Plus. And Fleischman is in trouble. And welcome to Chippendales on Hulu. I love this place. All for just $9.99 a month. All of these and more now streaming. 18 and over only. Access content from each service separately. Offer valid for eligible subscribers only. Terms apply. See the DisneyBundle.com for details. Today is a new day. Today is the day that your voice will be heard. Today you will learn more about how you will free yourself from domestic abuse. Welcome to your new life. My name is Dr. Ludi Green, and I'm the host of the podcast Ending Domestic Abuse. I'm a certified leader in life coaching. I help more than a thousand abused women regain their freedom. In this podcast, you will hear from top experts in the world of domestic abuse. And you will hear stories about abused women and men who found a way out. Together, we'll offer you emotional support and practical ideas. You can free yourself from abuse now. We'll be right back after this short break. Welcome back to Ending Domestic Abuse. As you can tell from the name of this podcast, our number goal is to serve victims of violence. However, our mission is much, much broader. There is not one character type, ethnicity, or economic status of women who is more or less likely to experience domestic violence than any other. We must stop viewing the issues of domestic violence victims as they are associated with someone else's prototype, as if they could never affect our own social circles. Stories of abuse victims should not trigger only pity or sympathy. Those stories should cause pause at potential abuse lurking outside a neighbor's, friend's, and our own door. There are many domestic violence victims who listen to this podcast who are also well-known CEOs, wives of congressmen, entrepreneurs, stay-at-home mothers, young women in the workforce, college age, and even high schoolers. Domestic violence impacts us all, and we must all, females and males, play our part in combating it. March is Women's History Month. Looking back at women's histories presents successful female leaders in corporate America, entrepreneurs, entertainment, health, and many other industries. But it also reveals roots of domestic violence for all women and men, including financial abuse, credit abuse, victim isolation, character assassination, and physical abuse that exists today. This episode will take up the familiar topic on this podcast of financial abuse from my book, Ending Domestic Violence Captivity, A Guide to Economic Freedom. I reference a survey conducted of victims who stay with or return to their partner after experiencing extensive physical domestic abuse. The number one reason for staying was fear of financial security, loss for their dependence and themselves. For this reason, Domestic violence is often accompanied by financial abuse and credit assassination through prolonged the abusive relationship. A common strategy for inflicting domestic abuse is to convince the abuser that they are not capable of managing finances and to blindly leave money matters to their abuser. 
every woman who relies exclusively on her abuser to handle the family finances, every woman who thinks she's not smart or capable enough to handle money, every woman who has never been taught how to save, budget, or invest is more vulnerable to financial abuse or domestic violence. Today, we're continuing our conversation about financial literacy and economic freedom. We're honored to have today as our guest, Meredith Moore. She is the founder and CEO of Artisan Financial Strategies. Meredith, welcome to my program, and I would like to learn about your firm and all the contribution you have made to society. And I have listened to the show with the Wall Street Journal, how amazing it was, and I would like you to share about yourself with us. So thank you for having me, Ludi. I really appreciate this opportunity and being able to talk to other women that are out there. So yes, yeah, so I have owned a financial advisory firm now for almost 22 years, and I do have a subject matter expertise on working with women and money. Specifically, may not be relevant to everybody on here, but women breadwinners. I built out a bunch of research a number of years ago by not just anecdotally having worked with women breadwinners for over 20 years. And there's a very specific psychology that kind of goes along with that, which sort of ties back to what our gender role might be within a relationship, whether it's a straight relationship or not. But there's very much a dynamic when somebody's the breadwinner, which sort of points back to what you were talking about in terms of financial abuse. But I would say in the context of women breadwinners, there's a psychology that goes there. I've worked with them and I interview globally every major academic that had studied them. And ultimately, my research and my experience resulted in a white paper that I wrote around the whole issue. Unfortunately, similar to domestic abuse, the pandemic has only magnified some of the inequalities within relationships around money. If you think about it, primarily, if there's kids, it's the woman that has opted out of the workspace which ultimately will affect corporate pipelines. Like if they don't have enough women in the pipeline to go into senior leadership, what impact is this going to have? Is it easier because your three kids need to, you know, do Zoom school, so you need to be home and that just made more sense for the family, but there are a lot of really big financial implications to people's families and to companies with what's going on in the pandemic as it pertains to women and money. Also, if the woman's not working, she's not contributing to a retirement plan, which ostensibly could affect how the balance sheet looks. I mean, what else is she contributing to or not contributing to if she's not in the workplace? So again, I've been in practice. I work with families all day long. I joke that I'm half technician, half psychologist, and truly I am not trained as a psychologist, but I hear that a lot from people. And there's a lot of shame and dynamics around money that is just different. And sometimes people don't want to talk about it. But if somebody is doing the work the right way and being a good advisor in the relationship, they're going to get to that layer of it and trying to help work through that with the family. I truly appreciate your support and commitment to women and families, which is so needed right now, especially this time more than ever. 
But I'm also curious, what inspired you to choose this career path? Yeah, so it's, it's an interesting story. So I did an undergraduate degree at Georgia Tech. And my undergrad degree was in industrial engineering, which has, Ludi, it has absolutely nothing to do with finance. Yeah. <laughs> First of all, I was a collegiate swimmer, started out at Rice. I ended up coming to Georgia Tech, which was in state for me. I'm originally from Atlanta and still live here. And, you know, I became, I started realizing in undergrad that I was more of an entrepreneur than anything else. I had been hosting big events and really was doing some fundraising. And at that time in the late 90s, you couldn't, like the idea of entrepreneurship was to go buy a Subway franchise. It's not like what it is right now, especially in tech. And, you know, really going into the financial services industry was a way at that time that was pseudo entrepreneurship. And it allowed me to sort of make my own way, build my own business, hire my own staff. And that's what excited me. I always felt like I could build a better mousetrap. And that was a platform that the way that I could do it. So it was it was kind of exciting. It still is exciting. But it is. It's it's very different. It's out of the box. But it just happened to be, in answer to your question, a career path that was semi-entrepreneurial that I had access to at that point in 1997, 1998. Sounds terrific. We were talking a few minutes ago regarding the pandemic and the effects in the economy and the effects on women's jobs and losing jobs and their finances and home and all that. What advice can you give to listeners to repair their finances, restore their credit, or regain their financial freedom at this time? So, you know, for women, there are two main things. There, if And what we'll talk about today really are going to always stem from these two things. The two things that women can do to empower themselves. And I don't care if they're making $2 million a year or if they're making $10,000 a year. Still remains the same two things. And number one is financial literacy. And just because you make a lot of money doesn't mean that you're truly financially literate. And so to seek out some basic education on some basic concepts. Most women, even at a high socioeconomic level, might understand balancing checkbooks and some fundamentals around compound interest, but there have been issues in the past that I want to get into on why they might not be as financially illiterate as a woman that's only making $40,000. And I say only because I'm trying to draw disparity there. So number one is financial literacy. And number two, I would argue, is almost even more important than number one, and that's financial engagement. Outsourcing or saying, hey, my spouse took accounting 101 or, you know, got an A in economics in the fifth grade, like it doesn't matter. I don't care if you're a Wharton MBA. That doesn't mean that you've engaged in finance and have experience. It's that experiential aspect of living it, of if you have an employer making selections with open enrollment, it's how are you at the table with the advisor for every single annual review Or are you trying to outsource it to a spouse? And the theory is behind that is, hey, I'm trying to leverage time. This person enjoys it. I don't enjoy it. But you're doing yourself a disservice. And I see a lot of women that do that. And I will say, the reason I mentioned that that income gap, 
I've had women that make over that came to me, they make over 750 and they always had their stay-at-home husband handle it because it was easier that way. And then guess what? They end up getting divorced and they didn't have a clue. And because of that, their divorce was way more expensive than it could have been because she wasn't able to advocate at the same in the same way at the at the level that she really needed to because she didn't understand the minutia. So, number 1, financial literacy. Get yourself on a track to where you can figure out how to understand different parts of all of your finances. And number two, engage. And in fact, I talk a lot about creating a meeting cadence with your spouse on like certain durations, like meeting weekly, monthly, and quarterly on very specific things. And if you'd like me to, I can go into that, but that's part of the engagement component. That is terrific advice. You know, it's very, very good for everyone to learn about it because we cannot depend on just the other person. We need to also take control of our lives, ourselves, and our finances. I totally agree with you on this. What advice can you give female listeners who may want to go a step further and pursue a career in the finance industry, but they're intimidated by being the rare woman in the room, you know? Yeah. So... Yeah, again, it wasn't new for me having gone to Georgia Tech, where there, there at that time when I went, there was a three to one ratio of of men to women. We used to say where the odds are good, but the goods are odd, in in reference to the men. So I think it's like any industry that's male dominated. You you can't really let that get to you. But I will say that it's becoming more and more where there are a lot more women, and there's different channels to get into finance. You know, honestly, I I started out and still to this day, still clear through New York Life, which is a life insurance company. Some people are going to clear through a wirehouse and that's a different culture too. And and some people, you know, they're not out of the get-go or they're going to go completely independent, but there's different ways to go into a very broad industry. And not all of which channels are going to be so male dominated if that is a thing. I think the bigger hurdle, Ludi, for women in finance, at least in financial advisory, is the fact that you don't have a salary. You don't have a guarantee. You eat what you kill. And I talk a lot about this when I, because I do, I mentor a lot of advisors. I was not profitable for five years. And so, you know, if, if you have a funky dynamic at home with a spouse, you, you, it's something going in. If you're starting a business like that, you just have to know. And quite honestly, I I believe that everybody should have a training husband or a training spouse, your first, first go around. And I had mine and I did, I started my practice and it ironically created very interesting dynamics because I wasn't profitable for a while. And so for some people that go through financial abuse, I always liken it to call it a balance sheet relationship. And so if somebody's looking to go into finance, you just need to be very mindful of what to expect. Are you getting a salary? Are you trying to build a business? And then what are the expectations you need to have of when you're going to become profitable and start making money? And again, I've been doing this for 22 years, so I have a completely different story now, but I, you know, it was not without a ton of sweat equity and a lot of mistakes and failures because that's what you have to go through to be successful. 
Thank you for your insightful information. Today is exactly the one-year anniversary of when the U.S. started to shut down in 2020 due to the COVID-19 pandemic. During an early peak of the pandemic, you gave financial advice on the Wall Street Journal podcast for those who lost their jobs in the economic downturn. Now, one year later, a number of these now unemployed were also victims of violence and are still suffering. Do you have any advice for these listeners who are still living month to month and is struggling to regain their financial footing? So this is a tough one. You know, I'm, it's, it's easy to give advice sort of post-mortem, if you will. I can give some takeaways that I think some that might resonate with a lot of people. One of the things is it's so critical to have a emergency account for three to six months of living expenses. And, you know, again, that's easy to say for somebody that has the economic means to save to that. I know that's not true for everybody, but that's one of the key things I always tell people that they should have. In terms of people that haven't gotten on their footing, I think at this point, it's, you know, how to take advantage of unemployment as best you can really truly looking at expenses and there is a psychology element in for some people with expenses what they're living what they're willing to settle for i i had a client who she had gotten a lot of money from a business buyout and had a lifestyle that she was trying to create and she was the victim of fraud and had most of it taken from her. And now she's forced to sell her car. And this is somebody that had a seven figure net worth. And so that's what needs to be done. That doesn't mean that she's going to like hearing that advice. And we had that conversation. And so, but that car was everything to her and she lives very humbly. So it's a time to make tough decisions is what I would say about right now. And it's how do we, you know, it's tough to take emotion out of stuff with what people have gone through. So it's almost triage. What can I cut? How do I slowly prioritize building this emergency account so that this doesn't happen again? And if there's debt and you're trying to service debt, what has to be paid off? What should be paid off? And at what rate should it be paid? And if people have student loans, there's all sorts of legislation that's come out where you can defer a lot of those payments. So really sort of triaging, you know, with hopefully a financial professional to really figure out where to cut and then what, how to address some of the debt and then where to be saving. Thank you for these great answers to the questions. And I would like for you to share with our listeners, your website is very important because I think they can get a lot of usage and who knows the services of yours will be able to provide to them. Would you be kind to share your website? Sure. So it's, of course, www.artisan, and that's spelled A-R-T-I-S-A-N-F-S, like financialstrategiesonline.com. I do, Ludi, I do have a number of videos. I probably have 50 videos up there. We have a number of white papers on women and money. And for those that listen to the podcast that have great advisors, we also have a piece on there on what you deserve to be getting from your advisors. 
I'm a member of multiple mastermind groups with my peers and friends that are advisors. And I have uh, most don't provide some of the stuff that we do. And so I have a clear checklist on what you should be asking to be getting on there as well. This is terrific. Meredith, thank you so much for answering these questions. We're going to take a short break. Then we come back. Meredith will answer some questions from our listeners. Something you need to know about me is that I love to multitask. I'm a mother, a wife, and a businesswoman. As an entrepreneur who had to build her own path to success, I'm always looking for ways to continue learning and to use my time more effectively. Audible has been a great resource for me. I can access thousands of audiobooks from the palm of my hand and listen to them as I commute to work, while I cook dinner, and when I'm doing the laundry. Listeners who enjoy our last episode about self-care will love Audible's huge list of self-help books, as well as their guided wellness program. Long-term listeners of the podcast who remember our episode with author Leslie Morgan Steiner can find her book, Crazy Love, on Audible. It is so important to continue to learn and improve yourself. You are worth it. Don't wait. Head to www.audibletrial.com slash ending domestic abuse to start your free trial so they know we sent you. All proceeds will go to improving this podcast to help even more victims of violence. Once again, that's www.audibletrial.com slash ending domestic abuse. Welcome back to Ending Domestic Abuse, and this is your host, Dr. Ludi Green. Today we're talking to Meredith Moore. She's the founder and CEO of Artisan Financial Strategy. And now Meredith will take some questions from our listeners. First question coming from Andrea in New Jersey. She says, during the pandemic, I lost my job and my finances are in very bad shape. I barely can pay my bills or find employment. What steps should I take to take control of my finances at this time? So that's, that's, a, that's a tough one, Ludi. So I'd first say, let's assess what you do have. Like what assets you do have. Do you have a savings account? Do you have anything that you can sell? We talked about before, like, do you have a car where you can scale down Are you living in a house that maybe you should consider moving for a little bit, at least temporarily? Where can you reduce expenses? And I I think it's more focusing on the path forward and obviously trying to get some sort of work. And with that, the first step should be, how do I build my emergency savings account first so that not necessarily a pandemic, but if an emergency happens again, I have access to liquidity or access to money. And that piece of advice with that emergency savings account is relevant for absolutely everybody. And in fact, I'll go as far alluded to say, especially for your women in senior leadership and at big companies and entrepreneurs, it should be more. For women in big companies, it could take a lot longer to get the same compensation somewhere else. So I always talk about six months of living expenses. And for entrepreneurs, maybe even more. So that emergency account is relevant for everybody. Thank you. Then I have a question from Mary. She says, I graduated from college in May 2020 and have over 30000 in student loans. I have a job, 
but almost my entire paycheck goes to food and rent. Monthly payments have been suspended since I graduated, so I have not started to pay back my loans. However, they're also not accruing interest. Should I try my best to pay what I can now, as my loans are not accruing interest, or should I just wait until payments are mandatory and I'm hopefully making more money as the pandemic ends? So my my gut and is to say I would wait, especially because that's that decision is all going to be driven by cash flow. You know, if if you feel like you can even put fifty bucks toward it, maybe do that. But I would rather see somebody earlier in their career make sure again they have that emergency account and maybe even consider putting you know. 50 bucks a month into even a retirement account that could compound over a long period of time, even though you can't use it, that time value of money will really serve you well in a long, over a long period of time. Great. Thanks again to our guest, Meredith Moore, founder and CEO of Artisan Financial Strategies. And thanks to you for listening. No matter who you are or what you have been through, you can find help and you can find a way out of abuse and into your new life. Don't wait before it's too late. Send me an email through our website at ludigreen.com. That's ludigreen.com. Or you can call our hotline 202-643-2327. That's 202-643-2327. We'll help you find a way out to freedom. You can help stop abuse by spreading word out of your podcast. Just go on Spotify and give us a five-star rating or share your comments. Also, you can help us by sharing our podcast on your social media. On the next episode, we will continue with my series called One-on-One with Dr. Ludie Green, and we'll be talking about the importance of being a mentor. See you at our next show. In the meantime, be safe and blessings. Blessings.